This message is brought to you by Cornerstone Gospel Church in Frankston, Australia. Uh, we're just going over a couple of messages uh, regarding the thought life here, and we've been talking about how we experience within this life as believers freedom now from the results of the bonds of sin. And this is an important thing and, and it's something that I've come back to many, many times over the years of, of being a Christian because it's the area in which uh, most of us continue to struggle uh, is in this battlefield of the mind. Um, you know, it's even recognised by word of faith preachers, uh, you know, the battlefield of the mind, they focused on it and written some books on it and, and these kinds of things. So it's one area where uh, some of the errant word of faith preachers have actually put out some reasonable material uh, is on this subject because it is a prominent subject in the Bible that God brings you and I into this area of liberation and freedom. So in terms of uh, our reference, let's go to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Verse 18. Who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things." Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise... Also, the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Now, Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for uh, the opportunity to Minister your word this morning. Thank you for the children and for the example that they've given us of memorizing interesting facts of history from your word. We ask you, Lord, this morning, cause your word to stir us deep down in our hearts and provide light in areas in which we are not yet illuminated. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So the 
the gospel and salvation affects the whole person. It affects you and I in entirety. And so we looked at the established, uh, established order of Romans chapter 1, that God is not hidden from his creation. We're not going to go th- over these in any detail. You can go back over the last couple of weeks of messages to uh, review them. That they knew God. They professed their own wisdom. They defiled the creation, creation above the creator. Uh, sorry, deified the creation above the creator. And we see this more and more all the time in our generation now. And so to summarize the established order of Romans chapter 1 is that ideas in the thought life are followed by outward results. That is the way that all of life happens. We think things, we do things. That's that's how life happens. And, uh, you know... When, when we're little children, we get caught and, and we, you know, why did you do this? I don't know, it just happened. And, but the problem is we get older and we still think we can use the same excuse. I don't know what overcame me before I killed that person, you know. <laughs> it was the rage within your heart, that's what it was. But, but the problem is we're in a generation now and, uh, in which we don't like to take responsibility for our decisions. And as a result of that, more and more people are stepping away from the responsibility that they have toward their own actions in life and the thought processes that went into that. We also have learned that we can say a couple of, we can kind of summarize this idea in, a, in another couple of ways. The internal is first, the internal causes the external. The internal causes the external. And morally, the internal is central to understanding the nature of sin and the consequences that go with it. It's, it's vital for you and I to understand this from a moral aspect that that when we commit sin, we're morally responsible agents for our sin. Yeah. Now turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. <clears throat> this I say therefore and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds. So you see the first area that Paul talks about is not so much the commission of a sin or idolatry or whatever it is, but the first area he's dealing with is is going back to the area of the mind. And biblically, at this time, the understanding of mind and heart is one thing. So when you'll see Paul uses these words throughout the process and he's interchanging them. That they walk... Uh, that they should not walk as the rest of the Gentiles in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus." 
that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which was created after, uh, according to God in true righteousness and holiness. So what's being dealt with here is this internal problem or this problem, rather, of the internal ignorance that uh, is demonstrated in forms of rebellion externally. And it, so the process goes by, uh, goes by the, the, the steps of turning away from the revealed truth and turning toward the behavior that we really want to do. So the thoughts produce the results. Now, when Paul talks about the heart here, he's not talking about an emotional response to Christianity. He's talking about a, uh, an issue whereby they understood the, the mind to also be part and parcel together with a person's emotive aspects. And this has been shown in recent studies that people without a uh, a, an ability to connect emotionally properly in life also don't have an ability to make wise decisions when it comes to it. And so we're talking about not an emotional holiness. This is not a, a holiness that's contrived in a moment of, of singing and rejoicing and then uh, we go away or has to be contrived with some kind of emotional input. But we're talking about a holiness of life that is grounded in content of truth. So a holiness that is grounded in the content of truth. It's a holiness that is built from the ground up, in other words, and the foundation of that or, or the foundational groundwork of that holiness is truth itself, as opposed to being established on Feelings, or, or even worse, being established on that which is false. So we've taken a few steps. The internal is first. The internal causes the external. And moral, morally, the internal is central. And if you go back and take some time to read Matthew 5, verses 21 through 48, you will see there that over and over, Jesus deals with matters of the heart. He says, for example, that, that murder is... You know, you, you talk about not killing, but I say if you're angry with your brother. And so Jesus deals with the issue of the heart. He talks about lust and he says, you've heard it said by them of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say if you look upon a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery already. So Jesus deals with matters of the heart concerning issues such as murder, adultery, divorce, oaths, revenge, Hatred, all these kinds of things he ties in as being firstly an issue of the heart. It is firstly an issue of the heart. And it's from the inward to the external that sin is committed. This is important for you and I because it's in this we can recognize and take responsibility for the sins we commit. We can come to God in true sorrow for the sinfulness of our own wicked hearts. So we can say that sin even is formed from the internal to the external. 
from the internal, from the heart, to the external, the result. Thoughts are first, and they produce the external. It's a, it's a very simple process. We can see this, and, and we can think about this in relation to God himself. Jesus identifies the Lord as being spirit, and they who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Hebrews chapter 11, the author of Hebrews follows this on and he says in verse 6, but without faith it is impossible to please him for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That which distinguishes the Judeo-Christian theology about the nature of God is the concept of God being personal yet infinite. This is something that sits apart from all forms of idolatry and all other religious worldviews that God, though eternal and infinite, yet he is personal with his creation, Allah, you and I. As a personal God, therefore, God thinks and feels and acts and the scriptures give plenty of accounts of God being moved, being grieved, being angered, all these kinds of things about the nature of God. In fact, of God loving you and I. In the area of creation, God thought and then he spoke. First came the internal, then came the external. He spoke the creation into existence, a real external world that God spoke into creation. And so when a religion makes everything just a thought world, it is distinctly wrong and it's distinctly in opposition to the existent fact of the biblical creation. Some... You know, if you look into Eastern mysticism, for example, it it talks in very mystical terms. That's why it's called Eastern mysticism. They're very ethereal terms, you know, about the creation and about the universe and you and I as being part of the universe and, and that when we become one with the universe, all these kinds of terms which are completely indefinable. But the Bible speaks about a very objective existence. It talks about God who is spirit but sitting on a throne. And so it talks about his objective existence and it talks about you and I that one day we will stand before him, that he will gaze upon us. Colossians 1 says he is before all things and in him all things consist or another translation says constituted all things are constituted the word means that in him all things hang together that all of creation is kept together is held together by God's very own power the external world which he made is is brought together and held together by the Lord himself. It's a real and objective external world, but it had a beginning and it began in the thoughts of God. That's where it began. 
every action that you commit to has a beginning, they begin in your thoughts. And so if we don't consider these kinds of thoughts, we would become forgetful of the wonder of God's creation. This is why the Bible so boldly declares that in the beginning, God spoke things into existence. Genesis 1.26 Then God said, Let us make man in our image. So here is the speaking of a thought that's, that's occurred. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let, us have dominion, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So even when it comes to the unity of the Godhead, there was the thought there to place mankind upon this earth and that thought preceded the creating of man. Here is thought and creation at work. And we have to hold these things together because this is the personality of God. God in his infinite capacity, all of his creation follows on in the pattern of identity as to who God is and in the same nature as that God has, that first comes the internal followed by the external. God thought these things and spoke them into existence. And in our case, formed man after he had spoken of us, after he had thought of us. There's an interesting painting in, on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel and I've never had the privilege of going there but I'd love to one day Michelangelo such amazing artwork and this magnificent picture of the creation of man and God is represented in the, off to the side here reaching out his finger toward man and their fingers if you can see close enough their fingers are not quite touching there and and so people wonder about this and they wonder about the feminine figure under under the Lord's arm there and uh, and so some of the ideas that have been put forward in this are that God having created man has created man as external to himself and therefore God reaches out to man and yet there is a a, a separateness because man is the creature. God is the creator. These kinds of things. And so then you have God's arm thrown around this figure here and, and so there's the, uh, this face, this you know, magnificent looking face that's here rich, looking across toward the man as well, which is interesting. And so some people have posed that, uh, you know, the, some of the mystics have posed that that maybe Michelangelo thought that Eve was already in creation before and that, that God uh, transplanted her down to the earth. But, but others have proposed, and probably more theologically correct, that, that she was in the mind of God already and that this is a representation of her being in the mind of God as, as Adam is seen as being alone uh, in the creative enterprise that, that's happening. Now... It's interesting, but the issue in that second idea is that just an illustration that maybe Michelangelo is illustrating 
the thought coming before the action that takes place. Now, we want to go on and make another point here because it teaches us something about ourselves as well. And that this thought is that that which has been created ex nihilo, or out of nothing. People love to use this term in the Latin for some reason, and uh, it gets a little bit addictive, you know. Out of nothing. Has objective external reality. God took nothing and formed everything. You're, you're standing in this world with all of the principles of physics at work, you know, the gravity and all different kinds of things at work, but it all came out of the thoughts of God. That God took nothing and made everything. Now, theoretical physicists, actually because of problems with the universe expansion and different kinds of things, they are compelled to believe that the earth was at one point nothing. And so when the creationist and the theoretical physicist argue and debate... Uh, the creationist says, well, where did this all come from if there was nothing in the beginning? And and you can hear, and if you go back over episodes of Q&A on the ABC, that um, uh, anti-Christian program, you can hear some theoretical physicists that have been uh, interviewed in the past, they say, well, we don't mean nothing as in nothing, nothing, we mean a different kind of nothing. And so they have to redefine nothing into something in order to make that kind of nothing equal what it is today. Now, if that's starting to make you feel a little bit mental, that's because you're thinking too rationally. And that's why it's called theoretical physics and not actual physics. So, that which has been created out of nothing has objective external reality and it reveals intelligence, character, and the personality of God. Some people noticed when Chris first brought along this this little pulpit, which is, it folds down to the size of a briefcase almost. Fantastic little item. It's very strong too, you know. Don't push sideways. It's very strong. The vertical strength is, is amazing. But this reveals something about the creative intelligence of Chris. This is the product of his handiwork his research and all different kinds of things. But this hasn't come out of nothing. The ideas have been formed and those ideas were formed through his research. They didn't come out of nothing. But the external world that you and I see is the creation that is existent from God speaking it from nothing into creation. So that reveals to us and exhibits who and what God is. And we have, to, we have to grasp this idea because it gives us a greater image and a greater understanding of the nature of God. In our text, in verses 20 to 23, it says, For the, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God 
into an image made like corruptible man. Birds, four-footed animals and creeping things. The external created world is a revelation of God. The word revelation means something that reveals or something that has revealed. So the creation around us is termed as theologically as general revelation. That's something that when I was a child, I kind of had an understanding of, though I grew up in a non-Christian family and didn't have church influence, but I can remember distinctly times in my childhood being out in the out in the bush because that's where I grew up in the country and I spent every available moment being outdoors uh, as, as much as possible. And so I used to wonder, I used to look at the creation around me and it caused me to wonder if there was a God. And I remember that even before I was 10 years old without any Christian influence, just wondering if there was a God because of the creation. But it didn't tell me who God is. It told me, it, it triggered something in me to think about God. And that is part of the purpose of creation. Is that creation, if we would look at it, that it would cause us to wonder about its magnificence and its glory. So we're surrounded by the external world. And so the internal nature of man himself speaks of God as personal. The external created universe and the is the evidence of the existence of God in a general sense. That's how we can kind of summarize this. Another form of revelation, some of you will know, will be special or specific revelation, special revelation. Now, special revelation is not the faith preacher who says, oh, I've got a message from God, and, and they, they give you some message which contradicts God's word. That's not special revelation. That might be demonic revelation, um, but it's not special revelation. This is special revelation right here. The word of God. The Bible is God's word. And so in the Bible, God gives you and I understanding. How would we know about the creation coming from nothing apart from the word of God? Yes, God might be able to reveal that to you as he did to someone who wrote the word of God. But because God revealed that to through Moses so that it would be recorded, there's a purpose in that, that God would get that revelation out through this man who was a conduit for the revelation of God to come to you and I down through history. We need the Bible. We need it for the message of salvation and for the knowledge that it gives. This is the key to interpreting general revelation. And you can see people who want to throw away the Bible in order to interpret the creation. And you can see the various different contradicting theories that people have about the creation as a result. And so that special revelation helps us in interpreting God's general revelation. Remember I said before that I wondered about God as a child, but that didn't tell me about Jesus. Along came the gospel message 
And the gospel message started to tell me about Jesus, about my sin and about the need to repent and, and to place my faith in Jesus. And where did that gospel message come from? It, did, it may have been spoken by somebody, may have been printed in a tract. But essentially, it is boiled down from truths in the scripture. And that's where I first heard the gospel was from people sharing that with me. And they weren't reading out many portions, but essentially they were taking special revelation to unlock things to me. And and that made sense to me because I had these question marks about the, the creation around me. And so it made a lot of sense to me. So God thinks and then brings forth into the external world that which was created out of nothing. We think we bring forth into the external world that which is already here and we're altering it. God's creation is an extension of God's essence and I'm not using that in an esoteric or mystical sense when we talk about essence. We're talking about the the inmost, the, the creation around reveals to us the attributes of God and uh, and so when the mystics use this term essence, they are talking about things that stem from Eastern theologies. When, when we would use it in a Christian sense, the essence of God, we'd be talking about the attributes of God. And this is why Christians prefer not to use that word because it has too much of a mystical mix-up with it. And so when we... Uh, when you see that used in the Eastern sense, you, you see people talking about teachings about God being in everything and God being everything. Uh, pantheism and panentheism. Uh, God is in you and beyond you and you are God and you are in God and you are, you know, they have all these kinds of terms all aimed at hooking people in with these mystical understandings. Now, and so man's acts in this external world are not an extension of his essence. They are the things that stem from his heart. They come from this realm of thinking and acting. They're not done without cause. They come from the realm of thinking, then acting. So, the, you know, the table doesn't shape the carpenter. It's the other way around. You know, the, the carpenter takes wood and he shapes that wood and he forms a table and he, he may have to look at that wood and study it in order to get the best shape out of it, but it and, and sometimes the nature of that wood will dictate how the carpenter can use it, but the carpenter is able to take that wood and form what he desires inwardly. And so each of us also were created in the image of God. Well, you and I are affected by the external world. Things that happen around us can affect us emotionally. We can see a tragedy unfold and we can be moved emotionally. We can see something that has comedic value and we can be moved emotionally. We can hear news from people, we can be moved emotionally. But... It's the internal that brings forth 
the external world. We think, and through our bodies, the reality flows out. God's creation and man differ, of course, because God can create from nothing, because he is infinite. Now, I want to just move on a little here more, uh, a little more here. Now, when you see false religions, not everything about those religions are necessarily total lies. Um, False religions and false philosophies can have elements of truth in it. But they are counterfeits rather than being a total lie. A counterfeit will represent that which is true in order to deceive the person who holds it. And it's interesting that American money, which is so much simpler than Australian money, because we've got this plastic stuff, but it has this thread through it. And so when bank tellers are learning to count money in America, they encourage them to actually feel the money often and a lot. And so they teach them to count the money. And a lot of it is done by feel because the first sensation that they will have about a fake note other than something that is plainly obvious on the front, like maybe it's cut from a newspaper or something, is the texture of that paper because it won't have the cotton thread that is woven through the paper. And so that's one of the first things that their senses will pick up is maybe other than a a discoloration of some kind will be this thread uh, error in it. And so this is the nature of counterfeits, is that counterfeits are intended to look as true as possible and to even invoke feelings of truth in order to trap people into those counterfeits. But there is always something in its essence that is wrong. However, it's not stupid. The idea of a counterfeit is not to be stupid, it's to be smart so that it can trap people into it. But they're perversions. That's why they're counterfeits. They're designed to appeal at an emotional, sensual, and even an an intellectual level. You can see within the Word of Faith movement, and some of you have come out of that movement, uh, and you've shared with me stories of preachers who have preached very emotive messages and, and promised very emotive things in order to get people committed to their false message. And so this is intended to appeal to people, as many counterfeits do, in that case at an emotional level, a sensual level, in order to pull people toward that counterfeit. Now, this is where true spirituality, true Christianity, biblical Christianity, firstly forms in the inner man the realm of the thought life. Why do we emphasize over and over getting back into the Word of God, studying the Word of God, rather than beginning at a a doctrinal statement, for example, or rather than beginning at a, um, uh, a church membership statement? The reason why is that all foundations are going to be built on something. And if you and I build our foundations, first of all, on the Word of God, that will then form a foundation that life can come forward from. But if we build on the foundation even of a a doctrinal statement, 
we only can be true in the inward man as much as that doctrinal statement firstly is interpreting the word of God correctly and secondly that you and I are interpreting that doctrinal statement correctly. Some doctrinal statements from the 17s and 1800s were written in a style of English that many people today have difficulty with. And so it becomes difficult for them to interpret that because of the, you know, listen, clerics are intelligent people. These, these, you know, these theologians, they're intelligent people. They've spent much time studying and they can get very wordy in their approach to English and what, what can be said simply, they often don't go down that track because it just looks a little vulgar and, and so they come into these very complex structures of sentences and, and so the statements can be very difficult to understand. Paul says, sorry, let me just go back. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Verses 1 to 6. Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent am bold towards you. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 1 to 6. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some, who think of us as if we were walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh... Paul's now talking just very practically. He's not talking about flesh in the sin, sin, sinful way. He's talking about in the body. Though we walk in this body, we do not war according to the flesh. So even though I'm walking in this body, the real battle I'm facing is not a battle of flesh and blood, he's emphasizing. For the weapons of our warfare are not physical. They're not material things but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. He's not talking about physical things. Then he talks about the strongholds. Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Here... Paul talks about the internal preceding the external, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Bringing the internal into a place in which it is surrendered up so that our walk can be obedient. That's what Paul is talking about. And so many times in talking with believers who've taken very unwise decisions in their lives and and when you get around to talking about it not trying to be judgmental towards them but when you ask them why did you do this so many times the answer is a feeling based answer I, I, I just felt that it was the right thing to do we were in love I, I, was, I just so wanted to get that thing And it becomes a feeling-based decision that a person makes. And that is not wisdom. That's not wise. See, our feelings must be brought into subjection to the Word of God. And this is what Paul is saying here. Though we walk in the flesh, we're not warring in the flesh. In fact, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty in God to pull down 
these strongholds, or a stronghold is a, a rampart. It's, a, it's an area in which um, uh, something of strength is weakened in order for a, a, a fissure to be made in a stone wall or something like that, in order for a, an enemy to be able to scale a wall, uh, all these kinds of things. So this is, this is what, exactly what Paul is dealing with in the Corinthian church, is that these realms of wrong thinking are at the root of sinful behavior. And Paul says if you want to prevent that sinful behavior, first of all, get the thinking into order. And not just into any order. It's not just getting it in line with modern psychology. I tell you, modern psychology has, has um, discerned many things very correctly. But it has some basic assumptions working at the bottom of it which are not always correct. And so if we are to take modern psychology's answers to life, we often will not get to deal with the foundational things that affect a person's heart. And we have to get back to those issues. And that requires you and I humbly coming before God and allowing the Word of God to teach us and train us so that our thoughts can be changed, that therefore our actions will be changed. This is so vital for us. If there's, if there's one area in the Christian life that so many people suffer with, it is that they found themselves down the track in, in some sinful behavior or bad behavior of some kind and they can't retrace back to where it, where it started from. But if they, if they could take the time to work it out, they'll see that it's come from this misleading thought right back at the very beginning. So true spirituality requires being dead to all things and alive to God. All fruit in the Christian life comes from the presence of the Holy Spirit in the inner man and this is what Paul focuses on in Galatians chapter 5. Love is an inward thing. This is really vital to us because first of all, for, for us to be able to love others, it begins with loving God, first of all. And as we love God, the inward man is changed. And then we are able to love other people biblically. It's not always easy to love people, you know. I don't know if you've ever noticed that, but, you know, as I've said, people aren't really the problem. It's only the living ones that cause trouble. But it's not always easy to love people. But when we are transformed, think of the love that Jesus showed toward Judas on the night he's betrayed. Why is that? Because perfect love was in that man, the, the God-man Jesus. Perfect love was in him. The external world affects people internally. We also spoke um, in times past, I'm going to skip through this, of active passivity. I'm not going to go into that, but it's about you and I actively searching for God and resting in him, you know, and allowing God to mould us and shape us. That man has limits and that believers can produce death. But the wonderful thing about our walk with God 
is that you and I, by being transformed in the inner man, are being transformed in such a way that our lives become vessels for the work of the Spirit of God. And the work of the Spirit of God is to produce life through us and around us. That's not that you and I have any life-producing power, but it's that you and I have become a conduit for the truth of the Word of God that as we live that truth and declare that truth, we become this vessel by which God can minister to other people. And the, the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit is able to touch other people's lives. And so we're going to uh, finish off with this next, next week. But, you know, when you think about where we've come from in the Christian life, from the fall and being bound and held in sin to where we are today, liberated from that sin and free to live in Christ, it's an amazing thing that God is doing in us. He hasn't finished with you. He hasn't finished with you. It doesn't matter what age you are, he hasn't finished with you. And I'm reminded, I, I told the church in Montagui about uh, Selvi's grandmother uh, in Macau that we got to meet when we went over there three years ago, uh, who in, in her mid-70s had a dream of these hungry people in Guangzhou and so bust away up to Guangzhou and I I can tell you that's a bit of a feat anyway, just getting a bus now. She could speak Chinese, so that helped. Um, she's Chinese, so that's why she could speak Chinese. Bust herself to Guangzhou, found the, the street where these hungry people were that God had shown her in a dream and started feeding them and rented a flat to live near them so that she could provide food and give the gospel to them. And she was, I think she was 76 and did that. It doesn't matter what age you are. God can minister through you. It's about you and I being shaped and moulded firstly by the foundation of truth that is in the word of God and letting our hearts be shaped by that, not being stubborn with God, letting our hearts be shaped so that God can then move us in the direction that he desires to move us so that then the life of the Holy Spirit can minister through us to other people's lives. Amen? That really is the nature of true Christianity, that we're free now from the bondages of sin so that we can be a vessel for God's glory in this world. Amen? Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Our Father, we thank you. Lord, and we praise you. Praise you that you haven't finished with us. Lord, praise you that you have such a work to do in our lives and are still continuing that work. Lord, help us that we would <clears throat> dedicate ourselves and commit ourselves to being transformed by your word, to being open to receive from your word the truth of your word so that we can be shaped by it and moulded by it. In Christ's mighty name, amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord.
Thank you for listening to this message. You're welcome to duplicate this message in its entirety for non-profit purposes. For more information and resources, visit cgc.org.au.